Welcome, everyone. We are going to be in the book of John today, John chapter 9. And a big thanks to Kyle for stepping in, emergency notified there and leading us today. Appreciate it, appreciate it. And appreciate all you guys doing your best to fill the room with good, loud singing. We appreciate that. Uh, we are in the book of John and John chapter 9. And it is a massive amount of scriptures that we're going to cover today. Uh, whereas last week we only covered three. Uh, John chapter 9 is quite interesting because there's really no stopping point as you go through John chapter 9. So some people will try to divide it into two. It's really hard to get three sermons out of it the way it is uh, structured because it is one long story. Uh, so last week, we just, just to kind of summarize, uh, we realized that we see here that Jesus passed by a man who was born blind. Uh, his disciples immediately uh, try to ascribe the blame to either himself for sinning or his parents for sinning because that's the only reason bad things happen is because of personal sin or parental sin, supposedly, according to their, their uh, theology of suffering. And so that Jesus uses this as an opportunity to say, no, it's actually neither of those and does not ascribe his situation as a tit-for-tat because of this sin, now he's blind. Instead, it's for the glory of God. And uh, so we looked at that and spent some time last week kind of uh, developing a sound theology of suffering. And a few quick points, I'm just going to read them. I don't have time to go into depth today because we have such a text to cover. But uh, we looked at several points, pulling from the book of Job, pulling from Peter and the words of Christ himself uh, in this, this situation here. But number one, acknowledge that God is still sovereign even over your suffering. And we definitely saw that there with this blind man, born blind, been blind all of his life, but yet it was for the glory of God. Number two, uh, repent as some suffering can be caused by sin and a lack of repentance. And even our study of the Lord's Supper last week when we were looking at those passages, uh, we see multiple places in Scripture where a lack of repentance causes physical uh, suffering. Number three, pray that su the suffering would be lifted. But if it is not, like with Paul, know that God has a purpose for the suffering. Number four, continue to walk in obedience to Christ through the suffering. Number five, don't allow the question of why me to overwhelm your thought life. And we looked at Job, uh, who, who was, he was, he did not curse God and die like his wife told him to, uh, but he was asking why a lot. It was consuming to him. Uh, number six, don't use suffering as an excuse for spiritual decline. And number eight, pray for clarity of mind to see that your suffering will be used for the glory of God if you love him. And that was drawn from Romans 8, 28. So a lot of good lessons there to go into, uh, to learn. Little did we know we were going to have a week of 75% of our church being gone uh, due to suffering. So maybe they were able to apply this directly and immediately in God's providence and sovereign hand. That was a good, good sermon for last week, and they're applying it now. Um, anyway, so you at home, don't use your suffering as an excuse for spiritual decline. All right. All right, we are going to progress through verse 4 to verse 4, and we're going to go all the way through verse 41 today. Again, far more than we usually take on, but there's just very few stopping points as we go through this. Uh, so let's look at verse 4. Read along with me there. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, 
Go, wash in the pool of Salome, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 13. They brought to, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that it is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to keep to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know that do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is amazing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, 
say we see your guilt remains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word to learn from, to study from, and to apply to our lives as well. God, may we continually uh, seek uh, the truth and, and the doctrine, and God, may uh, your words uh, impact our life as well. May we see the beauty of this passage, the power of Christ, and may we see what he is he's talking about when he is talking about blindness and those that see and those that do not see. And Lord, may we uh, acknowledge that John has written these things so that, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you look back to verse 4, and kind of as I said, it is one long story. It's really hard to divide, and, and you do divide it, and you end up preaching the same message the next week uh, because it's a repetition of the same story that is happening, all right? So if you go through verse 4 and 5, we'll start there. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is a day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here again, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. He did the same over in John chapter 8, verse 12. If you want to thumb back there a page or two, John chapter 8, verse 12. And as we noted, this is the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus comes in and, and just establishes him as the substance of all of these types of the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was designed for them to teach and reiterate and repeat all that they had gone through from the time uh, during the time of Exodus, including how God supernaturally provided rock from a water from a water from the rock, and that's when Jesus says, "I, you know, this this is me." And then Jesus says to the light, "Also, I am the light of the world," and that's also tying into that Feast of Tabernacles as God led them via light, supernatural light. And during that time of the Feast of Tabernacles, there would be massive lights risen up in the sky, oil lights to, to portray this. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, not only is it one of the egoeme statements, I am, drawing from Exodus chapter 3, taking on the official name of God, but he is saying, this is me, the light that led you, I am that light. So look back at John 8, 12, uh, where he says this, he says, uh, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here again, and John chapter 9 is taking on, uh, as far as chronologically in time, it's just going right into, uh, right after John chapter 8. So he takes up this again, saying, I am the light of the world. But one of the ways that he is going to prove that he is the light of the world spiritually at this time is to apply this physically bringing a man who cannot see who has lived in darkness all of his life to light and that's what's going to happen here uh, he says that here he mentions that the daytime uh, the night is coming they must work while it is day it's a figure of speech saying that time is now i must do these things night time is coming the night time that he's most most likely mentioning is the time of his death and he will no longer be physically present with them. We do see that that is the end of, of, of great works being done until the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples go lock themselves into the room, etc., and there is a time of, of spiritual darkness for them. Uh, even after Christ rises from the dead, they're still not empowered like they are on that day of Pentecost that is soon to come. So Jesus says, I must do the works while it is bright, while I'm here amongst you, all right? Um, going on to verse 6. He says, 
Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And it's an interesting healing that goes on here in John chapter 9. And by the way, all together in the book of John, the other gospels record lots of other supernatural healings. We only have three specific ones that he chooses to write about. And that John 20, 31, kind of the purpose statement for the book of John, he says, but these are written. Uh, he brings some, just enough. He doesn't feel like he needs to exhaust every miracle, every healing that John ever did, but he does bring enough to verify, to validate that Jesus is who he says he is. So when he does provide a supernatural healing for us, like in John chapter 9, there is a lot of details here, and it is quite long. He wants to substantiate this, validate this. He's bringing in the witnesses, right, that ties into the Old Testament, bringing forth two or three witnesses. He's got the neighbors. He's got the people who have seen him as a beggar. He's got the parents coming in, all these people validating, verifying. This is no hoax. This is no fake. This man was truly born blind. So did he have to touch people, though, to heal them? And that's interesting. If we pick, if John has given us three to, to uh, draw from examples of Jesus' healing, we find the answer is obviously no, right? Uh, John chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, we have the man who was crippled in, uh, at the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus does not touch him. He does not uh, use anything uh, involving saliva or mud or anything like that. He just tells the man, get up and walk and uh, pick up your mat with you, and what happens, that exact thing. So you have a man who has not the ability to walk, uh, muscles, tendons, ligaments, sinews, everything is, is unable to, and immediately everything is rejuvenated, and he's able to walk and to carry his mat without even being touched or anything, right? So that was the first example of a supernatural healing uh, John records for us. Uh, also, we have John chapter 4, or the second one, John chapter 4, we have have one where Jesus does not even come in the presence of the person that is going to be healed. So the, the, the official comes to Jesus and tells him his son is, is very ill, dying, etc. And Jesus heals the son, but he's nowhere even near the son. The son is in a different city, far, oh, watch out, far, far away. Uh, and he does not even have to be near him. So he simply speaks, the son is healed, and the whole family believes in, in Jesus Christ. So we have two examples in the book of John where obviously saliva is not involved. Uh, did Jesus use saliva for other miracles? And if you know your Bible very well, the answer would be yes. Sometimes, on occasion, he would. And so we have a couple examples of that. In Mark 7, 33, he, allow, he uses, the, uses the similar method to make, uh, to make the man's ears to hear and make his tongue uh, to speak, all right? In Mark 8, 23, we have another instance of, of sight being restored uh, by the use of saliva. So why does he choose to do that on certain occasions and why not other occasions? Theologians debate that all the time, and there's not a distinct, clear, uh, obvious answer, but there is... There's a little bit of a theoretical answers to that. And, and one that I lean towards, I'm not going to weigh dogmatic on it, because nowhere do we find after he does this, 
for do, do any of the apostles provide a commentary like John does sometimes as we're going through the book of, of John. He'll say something, he'll give a little quick commentary about what just happened. We don't see that. So instead, it's just that it happened. It is. It is that. We do find in the Old Testament, possible theory here, that Jesus, uh, G, that saliva was treated as unclean. And we saw this last week. I believe we covered this when uh, uh, Miriam was struck with leprosy for rebelling against Moses, right, and rebelling against God. And, uh, and, and God answers Moses, would she not be unclean if she had been spit on? For at least seven days, she wouldn't have been able to come around. And so we do find that there's a couple of mentions of that in Leviticus, Leviticus 15, 8, and Numbers 12, 14, if you're a note taker. Um, we do see that there's there the saliva is treated as unclean and contaminating another person. Possibly, Jesus is doing this. It's a complete reversal of that, all right? His saliva is the opposite. It's coming from him. He is pure. He is sinless. He is absolutely holy. And there is something there that, that what others consider unclean, he, it is clean in him, possibly. All right? But I'm not going to weigh dogmatically on that. Uh, but in the least, there is an intimacy there that it is him. This healing is coming directly from him for others maybe to see. Uh, as with this, uh, with this man born blind, that who has, sent, who has brought this healing? It is Jesus. We saw him right there on the spot. He did these things. All right, so, so we don't really have a clear, clear answer for that, but there is something there to pontificate on. All right, uh, what was the response of the people who knew the blind beggar? And we're going to look down at verse 8 through verse 12, and we're going to find <clears throat> that it's, it's basically disbelief. There's mixed views, but mainly disbelief. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam. And wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, And I, he said, I do not know. And so you're going to find this man who has been born blind, who now sees, is a great witness. He does not take information away, he does not add information. When he is asked, he tells them exactly what happened. And it, it seems pretty dogmatic, pretty clear. He's just, Then how are your eyes open? You look at verse 11. I mean, but even before that, they're like, no, you can't be him. You must be like him. In other words, a lookalike. And he's just like, I am the man, right? Very simple. Uh, look at verse 11. The man called Jesus, made mud. Here he goes, telling his story. It's not long. I mean, he's blind. He can't give a whole lot of details of what he was seeing, right? So he's like, hey, you know, they were walking by. The man looked at me, whatever. I don't know. I just know that from what I am told, a man... A name Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam, wash. I went and I received my sight. And uh, the, he doesn't know anything about Jesus, really. We find he doesn't have a lots of information to go from. And what we are going to find in this, the information he does receive, he believes, receives, obeys, and it builds, and we, we see true belief in him. Whereas the Pharisees... They continue to get more information. They continue to get more evidence, more evidence, more evidence, but they remain in their disbelief. 
So here we have a, we're going to see mixed views of this. But also you see the, the verse 8 and 9 there, the neighbors are just, it's easier for them to deny it happened, that he must be a lookalike, and they're neighbors. And in these towns, they were not like DFW area that has 4 million people. They're, they're small cities, small areas, neighbors. They saw him begging every day. They know. I mean, they're going against logic. They're going against the obvious, but the supernatural category, they don't have any spot for that because, as he says, since the history of the world, this has never happened. They have nothing to draw from. What do you mean a man born blind can all of a sudden see? Right? It's preposterous seeming. This is unnatural, and that's the point. It is supernatural. So this is a sign, this is evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Look at verse 13 and 14. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. But it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So once again, we have Jesus intentionally. Uh, he's chosen the Sabbath day for this healing. Does Jesus do that quite often? The answer is yes. It, 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 and of, the, of these that John records, uh, at least two out of three are absolutely on a Sabbath day. And you go back to John chapter 5, look at this, verse 15 through 17. I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons the Pharisees hated Jesus. One thing that they kept on pointing at, that he is violating the Sabbath. And look at verse 15 through, ah, we'll go through verse 18 in John chapter 5. Because uh, he had healed this man on the Sabbath. A man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So was Jesus working on the Sabbath? According to his answer, yes, right? Look back at verse 17. He is working for the same reason God the Father is working on the Sabbath. They are God. Uh, God the Son, God the Father, they are continuing to work. So Jesus would intentionally heal people and do things on the Sabbath to show that he is God. This is one other way that he is revealing that he is God. Also, we find out, especially from the book of Hebrews, that he is the greater Sabbath, that we rest in him. He is our provision. He is a source of all salvation. We cease from work. We honor the Sabbath, not by not mowing your yard on Sunday, which is not actually the Sabbath, right? But instead, resting in Jesus Christ for salvation. This is how we rest in our great Sabbath, Jesus Christ. So, uh, Jesus does this again on the Sabbath day. And that is uh, going to make the, the Pharisees angry, just like it did in John chapter 5. Uh, let's go on down to verse 15 through 17 here in John chapter 9. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. You, you just hear this matter-of-factness about him. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. 
So the Pharisees are confused uh, as usual, but this man is not confused. And you hear, you see the, the, the talk, and John is walking us through the talk of all this, walking us through the division. Uh, the Pharisees are completely anti-Christ. They're anti-him, opposing him. He has made a blind man's eyes open, who has been blind since birth, but yet, where are they, where's their focus? He broke the Sabbath. That, that's the biggie here, all right? Uh, but yet, they are, you have neighbors, people who are saying, this man has been born blind. He says he's been born blind, but now sees. But all they see is wanting to hang this around Jesus, that he is a sinner. Now, look at verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And this is important because signs were given by God. They are supernatural signs to validate, uh, authenticate God's messenger. And we keep going back to Exodus when, when, uh, when uh, 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 Moses, sorry, when Moses uh, was given three signs. They were critical. Moses says, how will they know that, that I am really a spokesman for you? And God says, you're gonna give, I'm going to give you these three signs, and you're going to go show them. They're supernatural. They're signs. And this would validate to them that he was a messenger from God. So here, the prophets use the same sign word. This man, uh, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Because it's not in the ability of humans to do such a thing. It involves God do invading the natural, you might say, performing this supernatural act. So even there's division there. How can a man who is a sinner, we're calling, some are calling him a sinner here, uh, do such signs? God is definitely authenticating him, validating him. Uh, so how could this happen? Uh, keep on going. Look at there. And there was a division among them. 17. So... They said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. Now, why would he say that Jesus is a prophet? We see here uh, the blind man's theology is growing and being applied, it seems. Earlier, he was just a man named Jesus. That's all he knew. But now, as he's being in, in, in this inquiry, in this inquisition, uh, he's thinking more so about it, it seems, and he says... He is a prophet, and, and that, is, that is good thinking because if you think back to the Old Testament, who did God give special supernatural signs to heal people? Not all prophets, but some of them, right? Moses could be one, you could say. Uh, Elijah and Elisha, Elijah performing seven and Elisha performing 14 total supernatural signs. Uh, so, so he's kind of applying that. Like, he must be a prophet, meaning a spokesman for God, because that's what God was, would do. He's done that in the past. Uh, how do the Pharisees respond to this, that Jesus must be a prophet? More hatred, more disbelief for Christ. And they decide to call in the parents. There's one way to get to the bottom of this. Let's call in his mommy and daddy, all right? And uh, he is a grown man, though, at this time. And look at verse 18. We'll go through verse 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son 
and that he was born blind. But now, how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory, all right? They have called in witnesses to make sure that this man is truly uh, who he is, that he was truly born blind, and they are hoping that the parents are going to say, oh, no, you know, this is a lookalike, maybe, like, like the other people said. It's not actually our son. But instead, they acknowledge that he is their son. And extremely matter-of-factly, almost like their words have been weighed uh, by a lawyer ahead of time to make sure that they say nothing that would convict them. Because, and you have to remember the pressure that they are under. They are before the Jewish leaders. And this is big. This is huge. If they say the wrong thing, if they ascribe too much to Jesus, then they could be cast out of the synagogue. And they are very fearful of this. And, and why is it such a big deal to be cast out of the synagogue? It was huge because you had one singular Jewish religion. And it was not like now, like if, for instance, now, if someone was cast out or excommunicated from a local church, we live in an area with millions of people, and odds are if they wanted to, they could go down the road a few miles and, and live in somewhat obscurity and no one would ever know and they could be part of another church uh, but a synagogue was different a synagogue was connected to the temple all the synagogues kind of went out in veins from the temple but all the authority was connected and drawn back into the the temple uh, with the Sanhedrin and the 71 leaders there so to be removed from the local synagogue was to be removed from the entire Jewish religion and you would be treated like an infidel like a Gentile and it was worse than, than any Jew. So to, to be cast out of the synagogue was huge because it was your access to uh, forgiveness of sin. It was your access to bringing your lamb to, to, the, to the priest, to the temple, so that your sins and your family could be forgiven, etc., right? So to have all of that gone, you would just be cast out, not only by the Jewish religion, but in other words, by God himself. You're removed. So this was huge. The parents did not want this. Also, uh, the cultural um, weight of it, it would, you, it's not just like you would be cast out of that, but you would be cast out of everything. Uh, if you ran a business and your business uh, was selling things and, and doing commerce with fellow Jews, you would, they would stop using you, right? Uh, if you were living in a neighborhood and the neighbors found out this happened, uh, you would lose everything. You'd lose all your notoriety, lose your name, etc. So this was huge. So you see the parents weighing this out very carefully and saying, yes, that is our son. We know that. And, and let's see, yes, he was born blind. And uh, how he sees, we do not know. The end. Can we stop? It's very safe. It's very weighted. You, you see it in their words, all right, which is a shame. If you, think, if you put yourself in their shoes and you had a son who was born without the ability to see, and there is no hope of that child ever seeing. He goes on into adulthood. There's no hope for him to get a work, a job, to, to have a life, to have provision for himself. 
You see him out begging every day for food, for money, for help. Every day you see him, and then all of a sudden, one day you get word that he is now he now has full sight. He has been fully restored. You think the parents would be overjoyed and even risking being thrown out of the synagogue to rejoice that their son now sees, but instead you see the fear, right? The fear of the Jews is so heavy on them that it suppresses that, and they do not rejoice. They don't. They don't give glory to God even even in this at this point. Uh, look at John seven. Turn back a couple of pages in your Bible. Look at verse eleven through thirteen. This is repeated through the book of John in multiple places, multiple ways. But you see, the fear of the Jews is a real thing. Uh, verse eleven through thirteen. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. And saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So you see, this is about the same time. All this is flowing into chapter 9. Very similar chronologically. That this fear is very strong. It wasn't just the parents called before the Pharisees that day that feared the Jewish leadership. It was, it was all of them. No one wanted to be cast out of the synagogue. No one wanted to lose their religion, you might say. These false teachers, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, held such tight reins on this. and They, they had the power. They could kick people out, and they would be ostracized for life. So there was this fear. All right. Look down at verse 24, John chapter 9. And for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, it's kind of an odd statement. Look back there at verse 24. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Uh, what are they saying? I mean, there's nothing wrong with giving God glory. I mean, we're all about the sola de gloria, right? To God alone belongs the glory. And they were too. But at that point of neglecting God the Son and neglecting Jesus Christ. So they tell the man, all right, neighbors have brought him in. Parents have brought him in. They agree that he now sees, but they want him to give glory directly and only to God. As far as the man that the blind man keeps saying healed him, they don't want that mentioned. That's what they're saying. Give glory to God as far as the man goes. We know that this man is a sinner. Who are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. So they're saying, do not give glory to Jesus. Do not ascribe the miracle to Jesus. Just and only give glory to God. Look what he says. Look at verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind... Now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? So here again, the man, they want him to state the story again. They're always trying to find a loophole. Maybe there's something here that we're missing. It can't be truly a miracle. And he's like, do you want to hear this again, right? Uh, and most likely, quite sarcastically, it sounds like, uh, verse 27, he answered them, 
I have told you already and you would not listen. Uh, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And we recall just from back in uh, chapter 8, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a Samaritan, which was one of the, the, the worst things you could possibly be called, right? That means you were of mixed, mixed race and mixed uh, uh, religion because of the, the cause of the Syrians coming in, taking the Jews out of their land. They left the lowest, lowest, lowest class of Israelites uh, there on the land. Then they repopulated it with, with Gentiles, and that created the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were considered dirty, filthy. Uh, they created a different religion. They took some of the Jewish religion and faith, and some others they, they made up. They only took the first five books of the Old Testament. They made their own holy mountain. They made their own priesthood. They made their own temple. And uh, they, so it was this, when they say Jesus is a Samaritan, they're saying he's a false teacher is what they're saying. It's not just that you're low, 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 but you're also a false teacher and you're here leading people astray. They also said that Jesus had a demon. So they accuse him of actually having a demon. So when this man says whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I know I'm telling you all I know is I was blind. I'm going to state this to you again, and now I see. And it's just straightforward with his answers, right? Uh, look at verse 20, 28. Let's see what they say as far as uh, do you want to be his disciple also? They don't like that. Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And this comes up. In the Gospels, comes up repeatedly in the book of John, but the Pharisees are always trying to establish their credentials by their bloodline going back to Abraham or their teaching line, supposedly, going back to Moses, that we belong to Abraham. We are children of Abraham. And you recall last time they said this, Jesus said, actually, you're children of Satan. Uh, quite the opposite of what you're saying, right? And here... They're claiming to be disciples of Moses, right? They're, they're bringing the teacher of the law. This is who we follow. And, uh, and they're saying that this is higher than who uh, the blind man is supposedly a disciple of. And now what's interesting, the blind man was begging. He just got his eyes open. All this has happened at the same time. And they're accusing him of being Jesus' disciple. Uh, there's, a disciple is a student. It's a learner. And that can't have happened that quickly, right? But yet we do see they weren't necessarily wrong with this. Even though he is not a scribed disciple sitting under his tutelage, everything that Jesus told him to do, he listened, he obeyed, and he did it. So in that aspect, in, that, in thinking he, he is a disciple um, and does what Jesus says for him to do. However, these, these Pharisees are still claiming to represent Moses. Now look at verse 29. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Now, pause right there. How do they know that God spoke through Moses? And again, you're going to go back to God validated, authenticated him through supernatural signs. Uh, things that could not be accomplished by man. Right, he had put his hand in his in his cloak, come out, had leprosy, put it back, it was gone. That was the sign. His staff put on the ground, it turned into a snake. The blood, the the dirt into blood, etc. The signs that he would give to Moses. 
So they say, we know God has spoken to Moses. How? Because there are supernatural signs validating his message. So they should say at this point, we know that this man must also be from God because God has given him signs as well. But instead, they do the opposite. I mean, they're, they are in front of the very supernatural sign that is staring back at them. Blind eyes who have been made open. You have the neighbors around witnessing. You have the parents there as witnesses. But they say, no, we know that God spoke through Moses. We don't know anything about this man or God speaking through him. But the sign is literally staring them back in the face. And he go, they go on. Verse 30. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does, what his, does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And this is what I'm talking about with his... The blind man, the former blind man now, is what he's being called. His theology is growing as he's getting, getting spoken to. He, earlier, he just said Jesus was a man. Uh, now they're asking him who he was just earlier. He said he's, he's a prophet. He has to be from God. And now they, they, as they ask him more questions, it gets even more clarified. He says, uh, look at verse 31. God does not listen to sinners. Uh, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So now he's saying Jesus is, is a man, yeah, but, he, but he's a prophet, and he, God listens to him, and he is a worshiper of God and does God's will, and God definitely listens to him. Uh, so he, he's, he's developing his, his, who, his uh, definition of who Jesus is. And look at verse 32 again. Never has this been done. And even if you go back and look at the Old Testament, the, the supernatural signs of healing that were there, this has not been done. This is unheard of. So it's, it's absolutely unheard of. that they, they should be like, wow, this is amazing. This is a sign from God. But instead, they are not doing this at all. Um, interesting here, he ascribes to Jesus the ability to talk to God and for God to listen to him. And you find this last week we were looking in the book of Job. Um, and, and Job was the most righteous man on earth. And God definitely listened to him. And if you look at Job 42, verse 8, I have it on the screen here today. Uh, this man, the man born blind, is thinking rightly. Uh, God does not listen to those in sin. Even though he knows all things, he's not listening uh, in that way. Look what he says in verse 42, chapter 42, verse 8 of Job. And my servant Job shall pray for you, God tells him. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So he has Job pray for them. And we have find multiple places like this in the Old Testament. So, so you have a blind man born blind, a beggar from the streets who is teaching right theology to the teachers of the Jews, the Pharisees. They don't take too kindly to that, all right? Look down at verse 34. Let's see, verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So here you see a little bit, kind of going back up to the early part of John chapter 9, 
where perhaps the disciples got their theology of suffering from. You have them finally, they're done trying to deal with this logically uh, because they're losing. Uh, they've got the neighbors in saying this is the man. The parents in are saying this is the man. You have the man himself. I was born blind. Now I see. How did this happen? Jesus did this to me over and over. Do you want to hear it again? Right? And everything is coming back. Oh, this really did happen. So what do they end up saying? They finally just get upset and go to personal accusations. And uh, this is a common logical fallacy. If you're losing an argument, just call the person ugly. All right? It's like, like oh, I realize I'm losing, but but you're ugly. You know, it's like, that's what's happening here. They've lost the argument. They've lost the logic. He's schooling them on theology. And finally, they just say, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And why are they saying this? Because he was born blind. So they're saying, you were born a sinner. And the, and the, and the, the evidence of it is that your eyes didn't work. So we know that is a sign from God that you were born in utter sin. And so that's what they go with, all right? And they cast him out. This would be uh, excommunication, that he would be cast out of the Jewish religion, cast out of the synagogue. It was more than just saying, um, can you go your way? He was going to be removed. Uh, from, he's saying too many good things about Jesus here. Look at verse 35 through 38. Jesus heard they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now this is a beautiful passage here, because you have Jesus, who is the light of the world, giving this man physical sight, right, at the beginning, and here you have Jesus, the light of the world, giving him spiritual sight at the end of John chapter 9. And the man's eyes are open. He sees Jesus. Look at this. He sees Jesus. And it is a physical seeing of Jesus, yes. But there's also more involved here. John is getting across. He sees Jesus fully. So much so that he acknowledges who Jesus is fully and rightly. And he worships him now he was a jew and we know that jews only uh believe that they can worship god i mean this is part of the commandments right you shall have no other gods before me you are to worship no other gods he knew this so for him to worship him and to call him lord and to acknowledge that he is the son of man uh jesus says um do you believe in the son of man this goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, uh, and Daniel's uh, vision of one like a son of man coming before the ancient of days, and he was given all power and honor and glory, right? And this one like a son of man. So you have one who is, who is God. He's able to stand before God the Father. He receives all glory and all power, but yet he is like a son of man. In other words, this is Jesus in the flesh who is God incarnate, receiving all honor, all glory there in Daniel chapter 7. So when Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Uh, he says, yeah, yeah. Who, I mean, most likely he knows something of this. Who is he that I may believe in him? And look at verse 37. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. 
Now, in the book of John, you have lots of times where the word believe is used and it's not true saving belief. We saw that just earlier with the Pharisees. Some of them believed, supposedly, in John chapter 7. Then immediately he's announcing them all as children of Satan. It was not true belief, right? Many people believed in Jesus as they followed him, as he performed signs and, and miracles, and they wanted more food from him. But then he began to teach, and what did they do? They all abandoned ship, and many of them called themselves disciples. Here you have a man who rightly does exactly what Jesus is saying for him to do. And here his eyes have been opened, his spiritual eyes have been opened, and he believes and he worships him. This is a great sign of true belief. Verse 39 through 41, wrap it up. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So here Jesus is teaching again this, this physical analogy of bringing light to this man who could not see. Also bringing, he's a beggar, he's the lowest of the low. They cast him out. You think of all of this, they cast him out of the Jewish religion. Yet you have God in the flesh who seeks him out, goes and finds him. He believes and worships him, worships Jesus Christ. Now, this is the right response to Jesus. But yet you have the Pharisees who claim to be able to see. They claim to be teachers of the law. They claim to be sitting in the seat of Moses. They claim to be children of Abraham. They claim to be representing God the Father perfectly, and yet... They are blind to God the Son in front of them. They are blind to the blind man's healing that's right in front of them, staring them in the eyes. They're absolutely blind. So Jesus has come to give sight to the blind. But those who think they can see without Jesus, they remain blind. And that is the Pharisees here. In, in summary, the story of the blind man born blind, you see many different reactions to Jesus, just like we do as we're going through the book of John and just like we do today. Uh, some, they, they absolutely hated the supernatural aspects of Jesus. And you get a lot of that today. A lot of people will say, I believe in Jesus, I just don't believe in the supernatural stuff. I say, ah, oh, that means you're probably a child of Satan, according to uh, John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 9, right? Uh, you're denying the supernatural when God says, this is how you know that you are to listen to Jesus. I've given him signs to validate him, substantiate him. This is, you remember Nicodemus who comes to Jesus. Uh, why does he come? He says, we know that God is with you. If not, you couldn't do these things. He, he was, he was, his theology is growing too through the book of John. Right? But he, he rightly says that, says that of him. So you have people today like that who, who want to dis say that these things aren't true. Uh, Christmas is coming, a time when many people celebrate the birth of Jesus, right? It's supernatural. That is one of those elements that's always attacked in Christianity. Do you really believe that someone could be born of a virgin? Well, I don't believe it, it, it's, it's happening all the time. I just believe in one time, right, that that happened, and it's supernatural. Uh, do you really believe that Jesus could rise from the dead? Uh, yes, yes, that we definitely do. 
Uh, so our, our Christianity is a supernatural Christianity. Uh, those that don't like supernatural end up putting themselves in the category of the Pharisees here, rejecting it in front of all, with all the evidence. And there's never enough evidence. You can, you could, these Pharisees wanted more and more and more evidence. Their evidence was saturated now. They had all the neighbors that said, yeah, I guess he is the man. And you got the parents, yeah, this, this is, that, that's him, right? You had the blind man himself said, yes, I am blind, now I can see. In front of all the evidence, what do they say? Blind. They're the ones blind. No matter what more evidence you bring before them, right? Even up until the day they killed Jesus, they're demanding more signs, more evidence. But there can never be enough evidence to remove the scales from their eyes. It has to be supernaturally done by God. Uh, the blind man saw light for the first time and saw the light of the world for the first time as well. The man born blind received something far greater than physical sight that day. He received spiritual sight to see Jesus as Lord, the Son of Man, and he rightfully worshipped him. Uh, if your eyes have been opened to see Jesus rightly as God in the flesh, as the Lord, then the right response, like the blind man, is to worship him him let's pray heavenly father we thank you for sending jesus christ to live a life that we could not live we thank you for validating him as as john the apostle says these are written so that we might believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing we may have life in his name god we thank you that you have opened our blind eyes to see rightly who jesus is in this scene today, you have multiple people ascribing different things to him. But you have the man born blind who rightly sees him as a man, as a righteous man, as a man God listens to, as a prophet, and then finally as the Son of Man, Lord, whom he bows down and worships as God. And I pray that for us today. And anyone here, and anyone that's listening, Lord, may the, may the scales be removed. May they receive sight supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit to see Jesus rightly, to see him as Lord, and to worship him fully. We thank you, God, for bringing salvation to us when we were blind and could not see, when we were lame and could not walk, when we were deaf and could not hear. And yet you open our eyes. You give us eyes to see. You give us, give us legs to walk. You give us a new heart. And that we thank you for supernaturally bringing salvation to us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and praise.